Hello and welcome to Helpline Relationships with Kirsty Levin from the Parents Village. I'm Siobhan Hunt. So this is um, our third of a, a different take on Helpline where we're looking at relationships instead of um, with Mothercraft Nurse Chris Minogue asking all the questions about crying babies. Mm. Now we're talking about crying adults. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or not. Right. Hopefully you're not crying. Uh, but Kirsty is here to stop you crying <laughs> and to help with any questions you might have about your relationships. Because again... Once you have a baby, things change. Things yeah. change with yeah. your partner if you have one, yeah. your parents, your parents-in-law, friends, family. It all can start to feel a little bit different. So Kirsty's here to help navigate your way through that. Mm-hmm. If you have a question, you can ask us uh, in a number of ways. The first is if you're watching us via Facebook Live, you can pop your comment below the video. You could direct message us on Facebook. We understand people would prefer to remain anonymous, so you can do it that way. Or you can email us at helpline at theparentbrand.com.au. We only have Kirsty for one more week. Mm -hmm. So now's your opportunity to send something in and she will answer your question next week. So let's start with the questions we have today. It says, one thing I've been surprised to see um, is financial abuse or control by the breadwinning partner. I have two female friends whose male partners earn the family's income and behave as if all the money is their own. That their partners who are raising the children and not working need to ask permission to spend anything mm. or get questions questioned or challenged when they do spend money. Both of these women are extremely frugal and rarely shop needlessly or for themselves. As a friend, I tend to rant to them outraged that we aren't 1950s housewives, but realize this isn't a helpful approach. Mm. What do you do in that situation to help your friends, Kirsty? Oh, that is so tricky because, you know, how far do you go to listen but then advise and guide and and I think you do have to draw the line at a certain point there's only so much that you can offer um, in terms of advice but I think you definitely need to be there as a sounding board to listen um, to what they're going through and that's the first port of call is to be a great listener to ask them questions about how they're feeling to see if it's concerning them if they feel like there's an inequality in the relationship um, and and then to see if there's opportunities for them to renegotiate with their partners to create a different plan of attack together. Um, it sounds to me if it's that level of control and they feel like they're really um, unable to exert any decision-making power um, in their life, you know, to me I would be suggesting a financial counsellor or a financial planner potentially or someone that can come into that dynamic to help them to create a budget um, together, um, which enables a little bit of collaboration and negotiation with someone that's objective, an objective sounding party who's who's um, well-versed and knowledgeable in all the ways that you can manipulate salaries and manipulate expenditure and, you know, tax and, and all those sorts of things. Um, but look, at the very least, I would be asking my friend, um, what do you think you could do to sit down with your partner to help them to understand your concerns? Is this is this causing you to feel resentment in your relationship? Is this causing arguments in your relationship? And if so, how are you approaching those conversations with your partner? Um, is there anyone else in the family potentially that can help to support um, in brokering a conversation around this? Um, potentially there is a more neutral um, third party in the family dynamic that could help to have that conversation and sort of mediate before they seek professional help. So 
I think listen first and yes, of course, advise around trying to sit down and plan and sit down and negotiate and mention what their concerns are. Um, but at the end of the day, they can only do so much and, and they can't necessarily change this, this other partner's mm. um, behaviour directly unless they go to them directly. And that might be treading on very, easy, very tricky territory very if you go tricky. outside the friendship and circumvent that. I will say, though, um, to the friend that's written this, that if you are seriously concerned about it being actual financial abuse, which is a thing, um, there are websites and I'll find what they are and mm. put them in the notes of this episode but there are websites that explain what financial abuse is and probably will have tips on how you might help your friend I remember talking to someone about mm. it once and it was as simple as making sure you had um, phone bills in your name or credit yes. cards or accounts yourself yes um, actually it's a really interesting conversation isn't it when you one person has financial control because maybe they're the ones that's smart with money. Exactly. But to be completely out of that loop and yes. disempowered yes. Um, can sometimes be dangerous. So yes. we'll put, I'll put links in the notes. So if you suspect that, you might want to have a look. Absolutely. And, and I think gathering the facts is really important first yes. because like you said, yes. you don't quite know all the variables at play unless you've really uncovered yep. all the details behind That's the right. scenes. Yep. That's right. And it is a con and finances are stuff you have to talk about Ooh, with yes. your partner. It's, it's not a hard topic sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, we have a whole podcast about exactly. finance, I reckon. Yeah, it's a challenge. Uh, but hey, look, let's move on to something that is, you know, just as spicy. Sex. Yeah. We're going to talk about sex <laughs> oh, for the gosh, next okay. one. Um, hi there. I'm just wondering if you can give me some advice on how to talk to my hubby about sex. We have a five-month-old baby and I am exhausted mm. and feel like there is no way for me to show my husband any affection at all without him misreading this as me wanting to have sex. Mm. He complains about the fact that he is always the one to initiate any intimacy. I'm feeling so pressured and when I tried to explain to him that I just want to cuddle and a kiss, he got all strange and mm. defensive. How can I make him understand that sex is just not a priority priority for me at the moment, but this is not a rejection of him? Okay. That's really tough, and I think she's definitely not alone. Oh, my gosh, there's a hell of a lot of exhausted mamas out there who feel like they need a lot of time to figure out their new bodies, to figure out their new emotional state, to re-energise after having a newborn. So it's completely normal and it can take a decent amount of time to feel like you want to engage intimately with your partner. Um, I would probably look at it from the um, couple's dynamic first and then I'd also be looking to the mum to see what she could do in her own way, in her own time. So first of all, how are they talking about this would be my first question. So um, if they're talking about this in the heat of the moment, for mm -hmm. example, when one of them is really exhausted or one of them is asking for sex, that's probably not the best time to have that deep conversation about. Which is what right, we let's all talk try about to do it. <laughs> Exactly. Like fobbing them off and saying, hey, now we talk about sex because it typically will inflate into an argument. Um, I think this sort of conversation has to really be scheduled in some way because it is a serious conversation and it requires you to have a decent amount of energy and insight. Um, so if they can do it separate from the home, potentially get outside, go somewhere public where they can't, where they have to control their behaviour to some degree and they have to be um, open with each other and start negotiating or first of all actually start sharing where those feelings are coming from because each of them are probably feeling a sense of resentment or a sense of pressure 
as a result of unmet needs or undiscussed expectations and unmet needs. And so I think first they need to really share and listen to each other to understand where they're coming from. So the mum needs to be able to say, I've just had a baby. My body's not the same. My brain is not the same. My energy levels are not the same. And to explain that it's not about her partner. It is about a transformation that she's undertaken that does take time to really adjust to, okay? And he, likewise, I think, should have an opportunity to explain where he's coming from. Perhaps he's feeling somewhat neglected and set aside and receiving less attention than he normally would because there's a newborn in the mix and he feels like he needs nurturing and affection too. So share those feelings and those thoughts and concerns first, but then understand with each other that they need to negotiate and reframe a new definition around what intimacy and connection looks like for them at this stage of the relationship. And I think we said in the last week um, something about the fact that it's not forever. It's a period of time in life where the goalposts might shift for just a certain period of time and where they need to tread a little bit more lightly and more diplomatically with each other and be and be mindful of each other's um, adjustments to this new role and identity and lifestyle and everything. So readjust, renegotiate what they're willing and not willing to do for a certain period of time and then agree to come back together again to talk it through at a later stage. And maybe they need some support with a counsellor or someone like that that they're willing to talk to either independently or together um, to be able to come to those agreements properly and properly hear each other's um, thoughts and feelings. Um, I think separately, the mum has a potential opportunity to think about self-care and to think about what are the things that are going to reinvigorate her, re-energize her, make her feel sensual, make her feel great in her own body, in her own skin? And that can definitely take time. So from a birth, a post-birth recovery perspective, does she need to see a GP or a physiotherapist or some sort of specialist to help her body feel whole again? Maybe there's some birth injury that she needs to deal with, um, some pelvic floor, some incontinence, some pain in, in during sex as a result of tearing, for example. So all those things need to be resolved first. Maybe she needs to speak to a counsellor to understand her emotional take on her new body and what is going on with her postpartum. Potentially needs she needs to do some pleasure seeking and fill her cup a little bit in her own way, in her own time. So this is self-care, I guess, um, at its finest. How is she moving her body? How is she becoming familiar with her new body? Is she doing some exercise, some yoga, some Pilates, something or other to re-engage her system? And what is she doing for pleasure seeking? Um, to make her feel comfortable and confident again about being naked potentially. So could she get a beautiful massage to make her feel great and relaxed and, and sensual again? Or could she ask her partner to offer a bit of a, a massage to get them both into the mood? Sometimes a hand or a foot massage starts out really you innocent. Know, <laughs> innocent and standard and then it totally makes you feel amazing and it leads to, you know, you know what. So... I think there are all these sorts of opportunities for her to engage with her partner, but for her to figure out how she re-engages with her body as well. Yeah, and feeling good about yourself. Yeah, totally. So yeah. important. Okay, this one is about marriage. Hi, after three kids and 10 years together, my partner and I have decided to finally get married. The kids are really keen for us to do this. So we're thinking of this as a low-key family affair. But mm. since the moment we shared our news with our families, we've been flooded with opinions and requests, and this is really 
really making me want to call, call the whole thing off. How can I tell everyone to back off without <laughs> causing World War Three? Okay, so it's really lovely that they're getting married after having their kids and that the family is so excited that they want to pitch in with their two cents worth of opinions. So clearly... The reason why the family want to give some of their suggestions is because they're excited and they want to be involved. So I would say that's your typical your, your typical response from an enthusiastic family that wants to get involved, <laughs> yes. right? And typically a large family too. But I think you'd probably have to figure out what your game plan is as a couple first, as a family first. So to come together and nut out all your priorities all your absolute deal breakers and your preferences and the things that you do want and the things that you don't want in your wedding, it has to form part of your plan first and you have to be very clear and on the same page about that to begin with. Then potentially I would suggest calling a family meeting because you don't want to have 50 different conversations with 50 different family members where you have to keep repeating yourself. That would be get very frustrating and tiring. I think if you had a family meeting with the primary grandparents or aunties or uncles or cousins, whoever it is that's meddling in this business, um, and sit down and say, right, we love you guys. Of course, we want you to be there. Of course, we want you to feel nurtured, cared for, um, highly regarded in this whole experience because if it wasn't for you guys, we probably wouldn't be in this. Um, but I think they have to set really clear boundaries to say, look, this is our plan. This is our initial plan. These are the things that are most important to us that we absolutely want to have happen in this wedding. Um, these are our core values. So to explain the reasoning behind some of their decisions might be really important to get them on board. But then to offer some opportunities for involvement or some opportunities for flexibility or choice to say, right, these are the areas we'd love you to pitch in and make decisions, whether it's choice of music, choice of flowers, menu selection, um, picking some of the primary guests that they want to have involved, if it's a small number potentially, but give them room for direct involvement and invite them along in the process where and if they can to come and view the flowers at the florist, to come and do the menu tasting if they, they're really wanting to get involved. But I think to start with, you set your boundaries and your parameters about your deal breakers. Such yep. good advice for anyone who wants to get married <laughs> before or after children. Um, this one is about divorce. Mm. Um, I've just recently come through a painful divorce with my, my children's father. We have finally agreed on custody and financial support arrangements, so I was hoping that all the really hard stuff was done. However, my ex now won't speak to me at all, which is making the handover of children really difficult. They are young, five and two, and he won't even come to my door to pick them up. I have offered to drop them to him, but he's refusing to let me on his property. I know he's angry with me, but this is terrible for the kids. Do I need to just accept that this is the way things are now? Oh, that's really hard. Um, okay, so, so she's mentioned that she knows that he's angry. So I think if there's a chance to take a step back for a moment and realise that he may need some space and time to recover from this process and trying to be somewhat empathetic in this could be a good starting point because different people process these changes in different ways. He could be feeling angry, resentful, extremely upset, not knowing how to control himself and his responses to her necessarily, and so he just needs to separate himself from the situation for a while. So if that's the case, and it could be many of those reasons or just some of those, um, I think giving him or allowing him some of that space for a certain period of time 
could be a starting point. But then acknowledging that it can't go on forever, clearly, because it doesn't make for a great co-parenting plan to have silence. So is there an opportunity for them to write a letter or an email to their ex um, where they're explaining their concerns or explaining their desire for them to come to a diplomatic agreement um, where they can co-parent together, but sharing her understanding and her empathy of the situation to say she understands how hard it is for him, but it's also hard for her. But in that situation of writing an email or a letter, in no way should she lay blame or point the finger or turn it into a he said, she said, he did, she did type of argument because that will just totally make the thing crumble all over again. Um, so it's really about a solution focus together, trying to come to some resolution in the fo- in the future, but realising that maybe she can come to terms with a certain period of silence and separation, but when he's ready to broker an agreement and a plan of attack with the children, not attack, I shouldn't, that's not the best word in this situation, a plan, <laughs> a resolution, um, that then perhaps they can sit down together and discuss it. Um, if she doesn't believe that's possible or he, if he's not willing to come to the table with a conversation with her eventually, then I think mediation or seeking legal consultation from a family lawyer potentially is the next step. It's obviously not the first thing you would jump to, um, but I think mediation from an objective sounding um, board would be really, really important because they're the ones that deal with this all the time. They would have an effective idea of what decisions need to be made at what point in time and what plan to roll out. In between that potentially, what I just thought of is if there's a close family member on the ex's side that you know your ex is very close to, but you you have also been close to as well, it may be worth reaching out to them to confide in them your concerns. Again, no laying blame, no attacking, no finger pointing, but just to express your concerns and really request if there's a possibility that they could speak to your ex to see if he might listen to them and be open to the possibility of them talking. So mm, It's very hard, isn't it? Yeah. Kirsty Levin and Helpline Relationships on Fee Play Love will be back answering more questions right after this. When you become a parent, you enter an exclusive club, one that only other parents can truly understand. I spent a lot of time running and yelling names. Come back, get back here. But I bought him one of those backpacks that had a lead, like, you know, a monkey one. Because it doesn't look as bad. Yeah, like a disguise. (laughs) The Parent Panel is a weekly podcast that invites adults to ponder the big questions of looking after small children with more than a bit of humour mixed in. Join us for The Parent Panel wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to your questions with Helpline Relationships and Kirsty Levin. The next question is, I have two daughters close in age, six and five now, and since the day the second one was born, they seem to have bickered and fought over every little thing. I know that this is common in siblings, but now they're older, it's getting worse and it's doing my head in. Mm. Aside from the stress of them always fighting, I really want them to learn to love each other. They should be best friends, not enemies, but I don't know how to encourage them to be kinder. Any advice? Yeah, that's so hard. And it is so normal. And I think as they get older, they're trying to assert a bit of power and a bit of territory and a bit of control and and make some decisions. So it is pretty normal that they start to jostle and come up against each other a little bit. Um, I can certainly relate. I have two daughters that are very fiery (laughs) and they squabble a little bit and I have to step in sometimes. Um, I think the first thing is in the heat of the moment when the arguments are taking place, you have to figure out which battles you pick to intervene with and which you step back and let them allow 
let them have some space to to come to their own resolution. So you almost need to observe your own reactions um, first. And some parents are overreactors, some are underreactors, and some are somewhere in the middle. So which category would you potentially say you fall into? If you're an underreactor, maybe reflect on why you're not stepping in often enough. Is it because it's freaking you out and you go into freeze mode and you just have no idea what to do? In which case, we'll think about conflict resolution discussions with the kids potentially. Or are you someone that always steps in straight away and jumps in too quickly and tries to break them apart? In which case, there's no opportunity for them to figure out what's going on. They're just getting separated and moved into different rooms or being shouted at or whatever it is. So reflect on your own approach first I think to see how you typically tackle it and then step take a step back to figure out right what can I do to fill in some of those gaps so in the situations where the kids are really at each other's throats and they're screaming and throwing things and doing all those crazy things that five and six year olds or whatever the age group does um, sometimes you do need a circuit breaker sometimes you do need to step in and go stop I'm going to count to 10 and both of you need to stop shouting at each other and put down whatever's in your hands. (laughs) It sounds like you've said this before. Yes. Sometimes I even have to clap. So sometimes because they're shouting over each other and they're throwing things and going crazy, I will literally stand in front of them and go, stop, like, because that's the circuit breaker. If I shout at them, they just freak out more. But if I clap, it sort of cuts cuts through the tension a little bit. But I think then... There's opportunity in the heat of the moment to either separate them and let them simmer down a little bit, um, ask them to stop talking and listen to each side and try to help them come to an equitable solution. (laughs) That is so painful. (laughs) Which can sometimes take a really long time. But in most cases, I think separation and taking a deep breath is a starting point. And sometimes they have to go to separate rooms. Sometimes they have to tackle different activities altogether. And sometimes you have to decide what the right you know, result is in that moment. But I think separate from those situations, you probably need to sit down with your kids and teach them some very basic conflict resolution techniques. So um, there's a lot of great resources online that you can look up. Like I think there's something called the choices wheel or the conflict wheel or something along those lines from memory, where it has different um, image related options. One is saying stop. One is moving away from the situation. One is um, doing paper, scissor, rock with each other to negotiate a better outcome and decide who gets what. One is sitting down, stopping and listening and sharing each other's thoughts and feelings. Another option is making sure that you stop and you apologize and be respectful and kind and loving to your sibling. So there's lots of different resources and tools that you can look up online um, and read through to get a couple of basic conflict resolution methodologies. Because let's remember they're little, they're not going to remember many of the ideas ideas you present if they're adult-based learning (laughs) around conflict resolution. But then separate from that, I would say, what can you do to broker a greater and a stronger connection with your two siblings? So yes, they're probably unique individuals who have different interests, different needs, different likes and dislikes. And so spending time with them separately to bond really closely with each of them is important. But finding those activities that they both find fun, finding those activities where maybe one can learn from the other is another way to strengthen the bond between the two siblings. So for example, if one's great at drawing and really creative and the other is great at tactile activities, can they share and learn some of their interests with the other sibling and they can come together in a fun activity where they learn a skill from another? Or can you 
present a separate activity outside the home altogether where you simply have fun and be silly together and you bond in that sort of way as well. Mm, Good ideas there. Um, Dear Kirsty, I'm a working mum of three busy kids, all primary school age. My mum and dad live nearby and are both elderly and ailing, so I help out as much as I can to take them to appointments and that kind of thing. I also have two much older siblings who live nearby as well, though they don't help with my mum and dad at all. Even when I've begged them for help, they've always been too busy and I've had to change my own or my kids' plans. I'm becoming stressed at always being the one to help our parents out. My siblings' kids are all grown up. Only one is left in the home in high school. It seems to me they all have more time than I do to help out and yet they don't. The resentment is real. But I don't want to cause a huge family drama. Is there a way to ask my family for more help without upsetting everyone? Oh, that's really hard. Gosh, we're all going to be dealing with um, caring for our parents. It's like the sandwich generation, isn't it? I yes. think that's what it's called, caring yes. for kids and caring for parents. Um, okay, so this mum clearly feels like they've got the lion's share of caring responsibilities. And in my mind, I feel like in order to help the siblings maybe understand the gravity and the you know the gravity of these tasks and the responsibility that she has she may first need to document all the things that she's doing um, to put it in black and white and and almost create like a fact sheet or a <laughs> you know like a document these are all the appointments I've had to attend these are all the Um, phone calls I've had to make. These are all the specialist conversations I've had to have. And this is all the information I've gathered over the last however many months, right? And these are, you know, this is the, the practical weight of what I've been doing. But I guess there's also the emotional weight of what I've been taking care of, in addition to rearranging lots of different schedules and activities for my kids and my family. So I feel like if it's documented and it's made explicit, it's much easier to see the burden and it's much easier to understand how to then divvy up those tasks and responsibilities because then I would probably say call a family meeting an urgent family meeting Um, and again maybe you have an objective um, person there to to help facilitate the conversation Um, but if you feel like at first pass you can do it just together I would go for it and bring everyone into that conversation partners and siblings into that conversation um, to actually lay out the facts to say over the last X number of months these are the activities that I've had to um, engage in these are the responsibilities I've taken on and to this point in time I've managed it okay but I'm calling for help. So I've called this meeting to really state my need for help from you because it can't continue in this manner. So I think you have to be very open, very assertive, but also very composed. And again, like the other cases, avoid finger pointing, avoid blaming, because that will just take the whole conversation backwards. And you never really know what's driving the reason for some of them being more or less involved. Perhaps one of the siblings is really strongly bonded to the parents and one is not. Perhaps, you know, there's some weird parent-child dynamic that's been going on for years that you're not quite aware of. So they're avoiding the parent for some particular reason. We never really know. And perhaps in that conversation, there's opportunity for them to say, look, I'm you know, I've been doing it because I do feel more connected to them or I do feel like it's a strength of mine potentially. So when I think about strengths and weaknesses and skills and availability, I think all of those elements need to become part of that conversation. So 
perhaps the mum needs to share, look, I've been doing this because I feel like I'm good at it and I'm proactive and it naturally occurs to me, but I've reached my limit, obviously, and I can't continue to do this. So can we talk about what everyone's availability and flexibility is? Can we talk about what everyone's strengths and weaknesses are in terms of your your understanding of this situation, your your ability to have the right conversations with the right specialists and the right, you know, um, organisations at the right points in time. So who's a great event organiser? Who's a great facilities organiser? Who's a great um, person to have conversations with the doctor, for example, who'll note down all the right information? And how can we coordinate together so that we're all on the same page? There's a few apps, as far as I'm aware, that help to support carers and families um, communicate in a seamless fashion. So there could be some technology that can be used to support them to pull all the information together. Um, if that conversation doesn't go according to plan, which is one of many possibilities, if, if the siblings maintain their position, I don't have time, I'm not interested, I'm not willing, whatever it is, is there plan B of are they willing to potentially throw in any funds to support and facilitate the care of their parents. And again, that's a very tricky conversation because not everyone earns the same amount of money or treats Mm -hmm. money in the same manner. So it might not be equitable in anyone's mind, but what are they willing to chip in to help support the process? And that's the second part of the conversation. Um, And if all else fails, my goodness, I know it's a horrible end to say this, but again, you can only control your own response to this situation and there's only so much you can do to extend an olive branch and to negotiate and ask for help. If they're still unwilling to help, unfortunately, there has to be some level of acceptance at the end of the day Mm. that they might have to continue on. And then potentially, you know, the last resort to me would be to seek power of attorney or, or seek legal advice to understand what other capacity they might have to, to manage it more effectively. Mm, hopefully yeah. you come to a happy outcome before that. Hope so, yeah. Okay, we have time for one last question. Um, dear Kay, Kirsten, my mother-in-law is a very nice lady, but she's really smothering my husband and I. She She's constantly at our house because we live around the corner and asks my husband to help her with stuff pretty much every day so that it that he's often at her house more than our own. She gets upset if we make plans without her, like date nights, etc. Mm. Oh my God, that's shocking. <laughs> she becomes, dare I say it, quite sooky. Oh, she sh- says she's always so lonely since her husband died 20 years ago, then giving us the silent treatment for a day or two. It's quite the guilt trip, and so my husband often says it's just too much hassle. But I am desperate to have him to myself sometimes. Mm. What can I do? Oh my gosh, that's really tricky as well. Okay. You no, know, I'd Question that very nicely, yes, but yes. Okay, so step one, you have to talk to your husband. There has to be the direct conversation about how this is impacting you as individuals and um, sucking your time as a couple away and how this is impacting you as a couple and also how it's impacting your relationship with your mother-in-law as well, right? So first conversation, 100% with your partner and to figure out, is there any flex in this? Is there any way to move and adjust and negotiate some boundaries in this situation and to help them understand what's okay and what's overstepping the mark in terms of you know, pushing their way into their family time more often than they would like. Then I think the husband really needs to have this conversation with the mother-in-law, not not the partner in the first instance, because um, it can't be seen as a bullying up on or ga- ganging up on type scenario. Um, 
but hopefully this mum in this case trusts that her partner will be able to assert himself and set those boundaries and to say, look, we're able to do this much for you to support you and we love you and we adore you and we do want to help you out since dad has passed away. But we also have to draw a line in the sand to say our relationship is is equally as important as our parent-son relationship and what can we do to make sure that this is maintained and there's equilibrium and um, and we can all live happily together. Um, so I think first pass... Um, conversation together second go husband has the conversation with the mum and then if there's opportunity for the partner to actually um, continue in some subtle diplomatic conversations with the mother-in-law to again I think we said this in the first week where you sort of kill them with kindness and express your appreciation and express your desire to have them involved in the family but at the same time also setting some boundaries to say we really do need alone time sometimes or um, if she does pop in at a time that's inappropriate to actually agree with your partner to say this isn't a good time for us. Do you mind if we come to you at a later stage? So it's a constant negotiation back so and you, forth. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't advise changing the locks or moving a house? No, I would. <laughs> no, I wouldn't in the first instance. I think in extreme cases, I've I've often said to clients in the past, start with killing with kindness and negotiating new boundaries. And if that doesn't work, then you decide if you hold them at arm's length and if you start to decide whether you cut ties a little bit. But to me, that's the extreme end of the scale, um, only in situations where there's complete relationship breakdown and it's causing more upset and more negativity than anything else. And in that case, it's about self-preservation and relationship preservation and you may have to start to decide to set even more defined boundaries and hold them at arm's length. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the extreme, which um, that was a joke, by the way. I'm not <laughs> but suggesting it does happen you sometimes. It change does. the locks, so, yeah. move states. Uh, anyway, <laughs> sorry, that was ending on a high note. Yes. Uh, yeah. That was our last question for this week and um, for of Helplines Relationships. And as I said, we have one more week left with Kirsty. So if you would like to ask your question, make sure you send an email this week. It's helpline at theparentbrand.com.au. You, Kirsty, thank you so much thank for your time. This has been Helpline on Feed Play Love, hosted by me, Siobhan Hunt. If you want to ask Kirsty Levin your questions for our next episode of Helpline Relationships, you can email them to us directly. The email is helpline at theparentbrand.com.au.